No, well, sir, if she says no, no means no. Have another minute. Maybe that'll... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome to the RC Report. The RC Report is the flagship show of the IB Network. If you enjoy this podcast, please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. If you do not give us a five-star rating, I am inclined to believe you are a hater and you would not want to be a hater. Today on the podcast, I'm really excited about this. This is probably one of my favorite podcast guests I've ever had on. He is the author of American Carnage. I I just can't tell you guys how good this comic book is and how excited I am, and we'll get into how I discovered it and everything. But I have with me Brian Edward Hill. How are you today, Brian? Hey, what's going on? Doing, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm excited to have you on here. Uh do you, I need, do you like, prefer, a, I I need like a rapper like intro, right? Like I need to be like, yeah, I, <laughs> I, need, I need a catchphrase. I'm gonna work on my catchphrase, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I need like a, yeah, I need like a whole. <laughs> I work on it. Next time, next time vibe. we talk, I'll have a catchphrase for you. Yeah, we'll we'll do that. As I kill that vibe, do you prefer Brian Edward Hill or Brian Hill? <laughs> Oh, you know, it's funny, man. Like, uh, I don't think about it. And I guess with some projects, I've used the three names, and with some, I mm-hmm. haven't. So I don't care either way. I got to make it consistent, though. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So, and you aren't. I mean, Brian Hill aren't is, the first. Is I didn't know why you went by it. 
I, I assume you went back because, like, you aren't the first – well, Brian Hill is pretty common, but you aren't the first Brian Hill that comes up when you Google, but you're getting there. But, you know, so maybe I didn't think, or why did you go with Brian Edward Hill at first? You know what? I think I had seen uh, a film and saw the screenwriter credited with three names, and, and I'm like, well, that sounds <laughs> smart, right? Like, people with three names are, are either either they're smart or they're they're assassins or serial killers, right? Like it's, yeah, something like that. So I was like, yeah, yeah. I, like, I need I need some of that, and so I think I I went with that at first, and then I just kind of dropped the Edward uh, with future work. But some of my older work, I think, still has the Edward. On. I don't know, man. I, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, people, the people who know, they know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <They> know. <laughs> That's funny too, because as you said that, you saw a screenwriting credit, and it's like funny that little things like that stand in your mind or stick in your mind. I named my son. Well, I mean, I'm pretty public with my podcast. I'll say my son's name. My name, my son's name is Luke Kenneth James Carlton. And, okay. Uh, and my name is Ronnie Carlton, but I go by R.C. But I gave him two middle names because, like, in fifth grade, sixth grade, fourth grade, when George H. W. Bush was inaugurated. I heard he had two middle names. I thought that was cool. And that stuck oh, with me. Extra, I named my right? son after my favorite two uncles. And that stuck with me all those years when I named my son. It's funny. That little thing. Yeah, I mean, so, n- names can be destiny, right? Like, I, I always joke with my wife, and I'm like, you know, if we ever have a kid, we should name him, like, Hannibal. Because there's only so broke <laughs> a Hannibal's ever going to be, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you never, yeah, you're not going to be homeless with Hannibal. You know, you, you, a serial killer, something. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, you're going to be about something, you know, you know if, if, if you want to just name your kid anything. Uh, but, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> man, you can bring down Bill Cosby. So now, oh, I mean, that, man. that name means something, like, yeah. <laughs> that name means a lot. <laughs> you should, get stuff yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I think yeah about right? That, right? right? That's a whole like, like, think, you think about how there's other people named Bill Cosby, right? Like, this is life, right? You know, there's some other person out there that's William Cosby, right? And think about how cool it was to be named Bill Cosby until it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> through no, it's through tough, like, man. no fault of your own. You just wake up one day and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> like, what? Like, I mean, that is a pretty good run. If your name is Bill Cosby, it's like a talking point. It's a party piece. And then, like you said, this happens, and it's like, oh, my God. Now you're the most you infamous man like, from, like, what America's dad to the most infamous man in America almost. Yeah, he's like suddenly your, your flex has totally been removed, just canceled out. Now you got to hide your name. Yeah, which is funny because my son's principal, the same son, in high school, his mm-hmm. new principal's name, I got the email, is Michael Jackson. Oh. Now, I'm not going to claim okay. they're Michael, but, <laughs> but no, this, I mean, it's on, on a couple I, levels, you that know, name is, it's a lot. Yeah, the Mike, the Mike thing is, is, is rough, right? Because, you know, there's, there's contentious, uh, there are contentious conclusions about the documentary and all of that, and Mike was a strange guy. But, you know, Mike's music was like the soundtrack to so many of us growing up. And it, it you know, it, it teaches you a little bit about the, 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 the difficulty with, you know, art and an artist, you know, kind of separating the two, right? And part of the reason why I try to be so positive on Twitter as much as I can be, and I try not to fan the flames of division or even when people 
they'll you know they'll be rude or they'll they'll try to like you know poke me and trigger me and all that. I never take the bait because I don't want people to associate a negative feeling about me with any of the work, right? And and it's it's like an extra bit of discipline I think you have to have as an artist, you know, um, if if you really want to make sure that never becomes an issue. And we're and we're in a in a society now where it's hard not to know things about people. You know, like you, yeah. we, we share so much, you know, you see uh, photos on social media, you know, details about things. Like I know things about people's lives and they're just acquaintances, but I know too many things just because I go to Facebook every now and then scroll down. Now I know everything. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a tricky thing. Like you were talking about, you know, do a podcast, you're out there. Right. And um, celebrity is more accessible now than it ever has been in popular culture. But because of that accessibility, it, a lot of people, you know, are, are, are kind of suddenly thrust into a place where it's like, oh, well, it's like, oh, wow, my personal life, my, you know, these things are now public record and someone's digging into your tweets to find something you tweeted when you were drunk like six years ago. And they're going to yeah, cancel yeah. you because of the six years, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a wild thing, man. Um, but you know, knock on wood, um, uh, I've managed to kind of navigate it as I've moved forward, I think fairly well, but it, it's a lot, you know, just, just thinking about the, you know, it's easy for an artist to feel like they're always standing on the glass, no matter what, right? And all it takes is the right rock hitting the right part of that glass, right resonance, yeah. and then you got problems. And then think, too, with the, the industry that you're in, I mean, the mailbag that people used to read or the uh, letters to the editor, that was the original Twitter. Like comic book fans <laughs> are about as passionate as they come. So you get the mm-hmm. other day, uh, Mark Wade, uh, I think he did a tweet and it was something like, I block people because I have to blah, 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 blah. And I had actually, I'm still, still bitter over the one more day or whatever the run was and they broke up Mary Jane and Spider-Man. I'm so bitter. Like I wanted to tweet him angry things and I never did. And when he made that tweet, like I almost like tweeted him something angry because it reminded me. It's like comic book fans, and I'm not that guy. That's what but comic book fans like, God, actually made you. me mad. Like, <laughs> it hit me. I was traumatized again. It was so bad. I was like, what well, kind of person are you? I hate you, and you need to know I hate you. Hold on. Exactly. Oh, exactly. You ruined my and let you know, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, and so you know, then I'm like, what I are thought, you doing? That's, like, stupid. <laughs> I, I, I talk to people uh, about, you know, people I know who don't write comics, because, you know, I, I write screenplays and television, so I, I know mm-hmm. a lot of writers in different forms, right? And uh, oftentimes they'll ask me what comics you know, what was that industry like? What's, what's it like? And to be honest, the best analog I can give comics is hip hop. You know, it's because the books are sort of like, like records or tracks or mixtapes, you know, mm-hmm. they just kind of come out yeah. and then you build fan bases on them and then beef can start sometimes. And then you have to <laughs> figure out how you're going to navigate that, you know, and, and someone gets mad about something they read in the thing, right? Oh, I didn't like that track on the album. I like what you, that line you had about Kim Kardashian. No, 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 no. It turns into a whole thing. So it, it, it's, so it's surprisingly analogous in a way, you know, looking at uh, hip hop and cool. looking at comics. Yeah. It's, it's very, very similar because it's all fan-driven. It's all reader-driven, right? And I don't even like yeah. using the word fan because fan, 
I think implies like a hierarchy that I don't think exists in comics. It, it's it's really about who identifies with your work, um, and and who who's carried through the dark by some of the stuff that you write. Because when you, when you comic books are stories about extremity usually, uh, and they're stories about people dealing with extremity and figuring themselves out, life and death circumstances, and all that. And a lot of comic book readers tend to gravitate towards them, or they or they fall in love with them in a difficult time in their lives. Uh, uh, you know, you, you hear the common stories about, well, I lost somebody close to me, and I picked this up, and that meant something to me. Or, you know, I, I you know, my I, military family, we moved a lot. Uh, you know, hard to make friends, but I read comics, and I felt like Peter Parker was a friend mm-hmm. of mine. And that kind of personal identification, because you're getting a dose every month, it's different than a movie or even a television show where yeah. there's a group of people writing a TV show and, you know, it's hard to isolate who did what on what. Um, you know, in a movie, a movie comes out, you like it or you didn't, you know, whatever. Another, you know, four more coming out the next Friday. So I uh, can move on. But with comics, you know, you're, you're getting – you're picking up one every month and you're walking into a world and you're bonding with these characters. So a choice like now they're not married because they didn't want to do that. Or now so-and-so is dead or now so-and-so went bad or so-and-so turned good. Um, you know, people can have very, very strong feelings about that. Uh, and I, and I get that part. I, I understand because I was a reader of comics growing up. I just try to yeah. steer people away from, you know, taking out their frustrations with something yeah, you know, just on so people online. And, yeah, like that's. Yeah. Did that's I say Mark Wade? James Slot. Now, now that I'm thinking about it, it was James Slot. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw and so that when, tweet. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Right. I saw, I and saw then, tweet. like, I, I and then I said, well, and part of my calculus was I'm interviewing you, so maybe I shouldn't attack a comic book writer. But I've never done it, and I and thank God I never had. Like I just think that's just a shitty thing to do. But when this happened, this felt bad. I mean, I felt bad for this thought. When it came out, and he was taking so much flack for it at the beginning, Dan Slott, and I was like, I see how someone could write a really nasty thing and, like, not a death threat. But I was like, I understand the mindset. Like, I really, but I, I never have. No, absolutely. I like, and, I and, and, and look, like, how do you get that mad? And this isn't a universal thing. I'm not saying that everyone needs to be like this. But, you know, I don't block people. Um, I keep my DMs open. Uh, and, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll get a couple arrows, you know, shot at me, you know, I get a couple kill shots every now and then, but mm-hmm. not too many. Um, and I, I try not, not to instigate it, you know, and, and for me, Twitter is a way I can speak with readers, you know, whether, you know, people are reading the comics or maybe they watch Titans or, you know, maybe they even saw like that season of Evil Dead I worked on. I don't know why people follow me on Twitter, but, um, mm-hmm. You know, I try to try to use it as a way, kind of like the podcast. It's a sort of way for me to talk to people that are paying attention. Um, yeah. But you know, it, it's they don't train you how to do this. You know, you don't you don't go through media training as a creator. You know, you, you and for a lot of people, especially people that kind of stepped up before social media really became the lifeblood of entertainment. Uh, they're suddenly thrust into a world that they did not expect to be in, right? They, they did not expect to have the expectation of that kind of access. Uh, 
Uh, and, then, and then you got people I admire a lot, like Jonathan Hickman, who they have it, but it's really just it's outgoing. You know, you can you can tell that the incoming doesn't really mean that much to him. So, yeah. you know, he just kind of puts things megaphone. out every now and then. Yeah, yeah. yeah they just want to amplify the message. And and he's really smart uh, about that. Um, I'm I'm a little too young and stupid uh, to. Um, <laughs> have have his wisdom at the moment but but yeah it's it's a thing like they never they never set you up right so you know you're 20 something years old and you get a job on a comic book everybody you know now people know about you because you got a major character in it what have you and then you go from being relatively unknown to suddenly being you know known in quotes by a bunch of people and all these opinions are coming at you and some of them are kind of rude it, it, you, it takes, a, you know, people have to learn how to take a breath and not just clap back immediately. Uh, um, and so, and, and you can see, you're seeing that in comics where people, somebody would say something rude and, and then the, the creator would just boom, you know, snap right back at him and then it turns into a whole back and forth. And I get all these receipts um, that you're going to have to apologize for, or, or at, at least, you know, kind of, yeah charisma your way out of because you've just stacked up yeah. stuff because you were having a bad day and yeah it's so it, it's 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 the hidden thing you know and that's why I tell people that want to be creative now is prepare for that you know and it's not arrogance to to think like that it's just a necessity because it's people are going to pay attention to you sooner than you're prepared for it's it's very yeah. rare that you get to choose right uh, it just it, it just kind of clicks over at some point. You know, and I'm just like medium warm in the game right now. But you just never know what's going to boom, pop off, and suddenly you're like Donny Cates, boom, you're Tom King now, yeah. right? And and now you now you're dealing with you know tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand people, and as creatures, we have not evolved to interact with that many people. <laughs> like, no, like, that's a brain, good way of putting right? it. That is very true. We just, because, you know, like, before social media, you would interact with, I don't know, maybe at most 350 people, you know, and of those 350 yeah. people, you're really talking about 75 people that you would really interact with, and then maybe like 25 that, you know, you can have significant moments with. Now, all of us are exposing ourselves to tens of thousands uh, of people, hundred thousand people sometimes, you know, a million people, whatever, depending on who you are. And that's a lot of, that's just a, a lot of incoming energy that you have to deal with. Um, and it's, it's something that creators should consider as they're walking into this, just how, how you're going to plan your way through it. You know, I, I always suggest in life that you make a strategy, even if you don't use it, you know, don't be dogmatic about it, but whenever you're going to do something, make a strategy. Like, you're doing a podcast. Okay. Like, what happens if you turn into Joe Rogan? Maybe you never turn into Joe Rogan. Maybe you do. Yeah. Probably probably going to be somewhere in between, right? A lot of people, you know, that's how, usually how it works, somewhere in between. Well, you know, you sort of think through that. Like, okay, do I have a strategy in place for when that happens? So that as it unfolds, and I realize it unfold, it's unfolding, I'm like, yep, I have a strategy, though. I know how to adjust my life. I know how to adjust this, adjust that for those things. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. How old are you? 
See, see, that's why I put you on game. That's what I do on podcasts. You know, I was just going to try some yeah, books. Yeah, I'm talking some books, but wisdom. see, I'm trying to, like try to leave man, something. Oh man, wisdom. Oh man, wisdom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah <no>. right. <laughs> You're probably younger than me. <laughs> so, oh, now, bro, I'm, I, 42. I like, I'm 42, man. Oh, okay, okay, then, okay. I'm like, I'm like, he can't be in his 20s if he's talking like this. But no, I'm, I'm 40. No, so, okay, no, no, no. Day, I lately. just, I just, but I will tell I you. seem young because I'm real immature. Because <laughs> in my branding, what I'm do, and I do a lot of social media, and I really hit Facebook hard, and I'm trying to work mm-hmm. Instagram, I'm trying to work Twitter, but Facebook is my lifeblood. And there's so many clapbacks, but I excuse it because I'm like, well, I'm not really that big yet. I got like 10,000 on Facebook, but only like a couple hundred on Twitter, and it's still me. And so, but what you, but you're right, like you can't. <laughs> and I'm like, how do these people deal with it? And and part of my brand is like on on a sports podcast is very combative. When I do entertainment stuff, it's not as combative, so I kind of sure. get away with, get away with it. But you're bringing so many people into your life. You're right, and the energy you get off it, and just it, it's really amazing. Like we like we're so connected, but we're disconnected. But at the same time, like all this stuff is like clinging to us. You know, it's like after you get out of the water, you go in the river, and like all this just crap film is on you, you know? It's kind of like that. Oh, yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's, uh, one day, I, this was probably well, a few weeks ago, you know, I, I went, because uh, I'll wake up in the morning, and then I'll do my workout, whatever uh, I, I need to get done that day. And I'll have a little bit of time before I have to go into the Titans writer's room um, to, you know, tweet some stuff or tell people a book is out or respond to questions about writing or, you know, what have you. And one day, you know, I signed on Twitter. I even forgot what I saw, but I looked at the timeline. And I saw something maybe mad. I don't know what it was. You know, it could have been, like, politics. It could have been, you know, I don't know, some kind of social issue or something. But whatever it was, I saw something maybe mad. And I thought, like, wow, I was in a wonderful mood before I logged into this <laughs> And I have let this thing change me, you know, at like 8, 10 yeah. a.m. Pacific time. I have let this thing change me. And it, it made crystal clear, you know, the – I don't want to use the word danger, but just the ability of social media to radically alter your, your direction. You know, it can like change your frequency if you're not careful. And I think a lot about teenagers, pre-teenagers – uh, who are, are dealing with that and those real difficult years when you're trying to figure out what you are and who you are and all that. On top of that, you've got these pressures um, of social media, you know, uh, running stats on popularity. And, um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, growing up, like, I didn't think I was cool, but I didn't have like statistics. Who <laughs> <laughs> likes on your Instagram yeah. post? <laughs> right. The thing is, I think we, like, in our age, we, we hit the sweet spot because we know what it was like before. So, like, our whole image, self-image isn't tied into that. But we also are hooked on it and we enjoy it. Whereas the people that came after us and then after that, that's all they've known. Well, it's funny you say that, man. I'm going to drop anchor on that a little bit because that's a really, really interesting point, right? Like, um, you know, so, well, I went to NYU film school. And when I was in film school, cause I, I'm the slowest evolving writer director in the history of Hollywood. Uh, but um, when I was in film school, 
we were we were studying right when they were doing the changeover between digital and analog film. Uh, and at the time, I was really frustrated because it felt like the kids that were coming up just kept getting the new new. And we would still yeah. we'd have to work with the old system, the old way, right? But now I've come to really appreciate it because when I look at, like, nonlinear editing, for instance, I still remember what it was like to have to cut that stuff physically. And I know what the programs are facilitating, you know. And because you know what they're making it easier to do, sometimes it's easier to use them and kind of find creativity there, like music production, right? Like I, I, I produce music just as a, as a hobby, really, because it's the only art that I make that I never worry about having to sell to anybody. So, you know, like doing MIDI music production on a laptop, um, you know, sometimes you sit back and you think like, man, I have more of my MacBook Pro than Trent Reznor had to make Pretty Hate Machine. You know, like I have more on that computer, right, than like Dre had when he was producing NWA. And you realize how much power uh, exists because you can compare it to the two things. But if you always grew up with it, you don't really know. So I talk to young people a lot. So young people, like, you know, I'm not that old. But, like, I, you know, I talk to young people that are like, yeah, you know, like high school, like, you know, college, whatever, just out of college, yeah. I'll do that every now and then. And, you know, they, they, need, they need the old head. They need, some, they need some Jigga to come talk to them a little bit, you know. <laughs> they, need, they, need Ho, they need Hova. They give them a little Hova energy. And uh, the, the thing I have to remind them of is you have so much power, and it's so easy to feel powerless. And I think a lot of my work is about people – trying to find power in a world that seems like it's taking it away from you, right? And, and you're trying to find purpose in a world that doesn't necessarily seem to offer that to everybody. Uh, and so a lot of my stories are about the searching for that, the finding of it, and then the, the responsibility and the actions you take once you find it. Makes sense. Makes sense. That's that's a good message to tell them too, and uh, and it's just too I, I with my kids and I'm a teacher even though I'm uh, phasing out of that, but oh, I, I've been a teacher most of my my adult life, and I would tell these kids like it's all the tip of your fingers from if you're gonna talk to a girl, if you're gonna look up a word, and I would tell them the stories how the old man had to go look in the dictionary and the encyclopedia to find what he wanted, or actually have to go up to a girl or hold a conversation on the phone. They they do have so much power, and I, I, I would kind of say that in a in more of a nagging way since I was a teacher there all the time. It's like you just have to use what's there, and it's so much easier oh, man, than I it's ever been. But it makes it complacent. I was people get complacent about stuff. Dude, I was talking to a kid uh, the other day, and they're asking about something about you know research. I was like, yeah, you know, and you know, and I used to look at you know look, look at the encyclopedia, and they were like, you mean Wikipedia? I'm like, no. Like, no. No, I meant the I meant <laughs> an encyclopedia. It was, it was physical books that you had on the shelf. In volume. <laughs> in volume. volume they right? all go, and then there would be letters that were too big, and so they would break it down like right. B R, you know, B B E to B R. You know, it was like it was just ridiculous. It was really ridiculous. Because this kid looked at me like, why does he keep pronouncing Wikipedia wrong? <laughs> 
like, whoa, now I feel like Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, they, make, they can make you feel old real quick. Oh, man. Quick. I had to, like, you know, after that conversation, I had to listen to, like, you know, Blueface for, like, two hours just to get the vibe back. <laughs> like, I was like, woo. I'm feeling real Jarrett's Hall right now. Yeah, they can get you because technology has changed so quickly that that gap, if you talk about those things that that we had as a child, they had no idea, like pay phones and beepers and encyclopedias. And, like, I don't think they could fathom that there used to be people that would travel around this country selling encyclopedias. Man, and now it's, everyone it's just makes it up. <laughs> Anybody can add to the encyclopedia on Wikipedia. The beautiful thing about it is there's a there's so many so so many more opportunities uh, out here to do things because yeah, you've got you know the means of production is easier the means of distribution is, is easier um, so you know like you can go to your bathroom and record our album. And throw it up on SoundCloud, and then next year you're yep. at the OVO Fest or something. You know, you can write a novel, throw it up on a blog site. You know, just put chapters up on Medium or something, and get a readership. And so that's a beautiful thing. You know that that has created a new democracy of entertainment, of content creation, and I, I think that is incredible. the The darker side of it is people are blowing up. In like every age range, you know, you got like a little tag yeah, on yeah. Instagram, you know. Now that little child, yeah. <laughs> her people are making a devil's bargain with celebrity that I'm sure is going to create problems later on. She probably yeah, going to have some Britney yeah. Spears problems as she grows up, but but that's real, right? And so, you know, you said you you know you have a kid, so like, you know, like a twelve year old now feels pressure because they're not yep. famous. Yeah. It's nuts. It's like, I felt pressure because I was like a fat kid in St. Louis. And, I, you know, I felt <laughs> pressure when I was like walked up a flight of stairs because I was fat. But, like, you know, I didn't feel like, ooh, I really need to get a YouTube. I need, you know, I need subscribers. Yeah. Uh, I need, I need to, to get an Instagram. You know, and and for for women, young women, girls, it's it's like exponentially yeah. crazy, brutal, right? Yeah, it is. You know, because you just cause you, you got you got high school kids that are like, okay, well, you know, I'm gonna take a picture of myself in a bikini at my friend's pool, and now I've got seventy five thousand followers on Instagram. Yeah. And one, <laughs> you're not eighteen yet, so slow down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, now now you got like celebrity pressure, right? Um, and and it can strike anywhere. You don't have to move to New York. You don't have to move to L.A. You know, you don't have to be in a big market. You'd be in a small market town, and then suddenly you're zoom. So it's um, all of you know, all of entertainment, creativity, art is like happening in this wild west landscape that I I I always see opportunity in chaos. You know, um, it goes to get your son zoo, right? And you start talking about some military strategy. But chaos, chaos is a ladder. Chaotic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, and I, 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 I feel like 
I feel like in high schools, kids would be well served if there was a uh, like a mandatory class that they could take just to give them some perspective on this stuff because kids are just going through it. I know, but it's so scary that they're not. They're on the cutting edge of it though. The problem is that the kids are leading the mm-hmm. social media movement, so it's almost like the adults can't. How do you catch class up? On it. Right? I don't think most of my coworkers they can't. Te- the adults can't teach it because the kids are ahead of them. But you're right about it. Though. Right. You know, you're you're right. No, you're absolutely right, man. Like, you know, the kids they're the, the new platforms, new things. You know, new this like TikTok, and you're out there, and you got creepy dudes. You know, talking to like yep. 15 year olds on a thing, and this is all happening, and and someone's a parent, and they don't know what's going on. Like it's bananas. So, uh, uh, there's the world is moving very fast. It's moving very very fast, and it's exciting, and there's tons of opportunity, and and people are uh, able to, you know, kind of make moves and get results much faster than they used to be able to, to do that. But it does create additional pressure. And because, gosh, I saw this kid, he, well, one kid, they had the Fortnite tournament uh, last week, or I think it was last week, maybe earlier this week. One kid was crying. He came fifth place and won $900,000. But the winner won $3 million. And I text my sons and say, what are you doing with your life? You're always on that game, and you don't answer my calls and my texts. I said, there are kids out there making money. Like, I'm joking, but it is that pressure that even, like, Parents will say, well, wait a minute, you are playing the game, so, you know, you can't you make some money off of it? It's, it's everywhere. Well, that's it, all it really, little pay happening. Like, yeah. Somebody was like, <laughs> okay, my daughter is a clown. Let me go ahead and go to the bank. Let me get this money yep. out of the bank. I'm going to put it right back in the bank after we get done filming. But let me go ahead and, and you know, and get a couple stacks out of the bank, and she's going to hold the, the mm-hmm. money phone to her ear, and you're going to record, like, 10 or 12 silly videos, and then tomorrow I'm going to redeposit yep. this money. We're going to upload them to Instagram. And everyone is a commodity. You know, it's, it's almost like a William Gibson novel, or, or, or uh, you start thinking about like uh, Mike Pondsmith's work in Cyberpunk. And Pondsmith is a guy that I greatly admire because uh, mm. um, I kind of grew up, you know, kind of, you know, I would read the Cyberpunk um, role playing guides. I wouldn't play it. I never played a tabletop game, but I would read all the guides because they were like these world mm-hmm. Bibles. And uh, I would just be fascinated by, you know, all the different like strata that would be created and, and the, um, you know, just the way you could sort of swim through the details of this world. And we live in a cyberpunk dystopia. We just, I don't want to say dystopia, strong word, but we do live in a cyberpunk reality. And it doesn't look like Blade Runner everywhere. Some places it does. If you, I know, I've been to Thailand. It looks like Blade Runner there, you know, yeah. Hong Kong. You know, you get sections of New York for sure. But uh, I was just in Toronto, and, and Eden Square, you know, has a very Blade Runner vibe to it. Um, and you're like, whoa, those things that futurists were writing about in the 80s, we're kind of in the middle of them. They didn't manifest. Like, we don't have people running around with, you know, Upgrades and that kind of thing. Some, I mean, there's a subculture, but it's not like people have. Like, oh, well, no I don't know. Depends on how you you talked about Instagram and some of models, but <laughs> but well, that's you. true, right? Because that's because instead of you know in the in the cyberpunk fiction, it was always you're gonna you're gonna get the physical upgrade, right? You're gonna go into the yeah. place and they're gonna you know give you the the sexy upgrade. They're gonna whatever you know do the whole thing to you, the, reduce the body fat, make yourself stronger, give yourself some cable arms, whatever it is. Um, 
and you know that stuff is happening, but it's still crazy expensive. Uh, I think I think a lot of a lot of that futurist possibility is mitigated by just the sheer cost of it. It's just not cost effective, yeah. right? But since we we rarely interact with people in person, so much of our interactions digital. Now we have these, like you said, we have these digital upgrades, right? Like you got the face app, and you know it can make you it can make you you know look a little quote unquote better, you know, than than you normally would. Yeah. And you can you can interact with people, you know, strictly through the internet and sort of build this whole thing. So we we have these avatars that we use that represent us, um, and then the dissonance between our avatars and who we are in real life, which creates a kind of a unique melancholy. Um. You know, because we are – you have to train yourself, I think, to to get equivalent joy out of reality because there is so much – the low-hanging fruit is just there uh, digitally. Um, so what that what does, what, what is doing to us as a culture, uh, interpersonal relationships, that kind of thing, like, you know, can keep your podcast PG-13, but you start thinking about how it's going to affect human sexuality. You know, going forward, um, yeah, all those things. It's it, it's it's kind of a fascinating time, you know. And then when I was like rereading Neuromancer, because uh, I'm a huge fan of William Gibson, I, I was like, wow, philosophically, we live through a lot of this stuff. It just doesn't. It's not the same as it is in the book, but philosophically, a lot of these things are are with us now, um, and we just haven't realized it because there's no flying cars, right? We we, yeah, we don't yeah. have those aesthetics everywhere, but we do have the emotional reality of the techno future, um, and it's uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I'm probably gonna uh, I got a book I'm putting together that um, is unannounced, but it's gonna kind of interface with all of this stuff. Um, I can talk about that a little bit later on in the year as it as it you know gets closer to game time on that one. But that's what's been on my mind currently, as you can tell. I like to ask creative types and writers especially this question. Why do you write? Yeah. Ooh, because I'm not pretty enough to be an actor. Um, <laughs> no, actually, I never wanted to be an actor. Um, hmm. Well, I'll tell you this, man. Uh, I never thought I was going to be a writer um, growing up. I thought I was going to be an FBI agent. I wanted to be in the FBI and catch serial killers. Uh, I've always been fascinated with the the more intense, darker aspects of human psychology and engaging them. And I've always felt like I had an ability to wade through that stuff without letting that stuff, like, consume me, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, when I was 13 years old, I read Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, which is probably my favorite novel. Um, I, I reread it a couple times a year. And I was fascinated by Will Graham as a character, you know, this guy that would, you know, get into the minds of the madmen and, and, and try to track him down. And now it's like a common thing. There's like five shows on network TV about that. And then, you know, Netflix, Mindhunters, what have you. But back, back then, you know, we're talking like pre Silence of the Lambs when I read Red Dragon. So uh, I was a voracious reader when I was a kid. I used to spend a lot of time in the library because I was broke and the library was free. Um, yeah. Uh, and so b- books were like windows, you know, like I, when I was reading a book, I wasn't thinking about how broke I was. 
Uh, yeah. So fiction, you know, kind of got me out of it, right? I wanted to be somewhere else. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and, you know, and, and you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. You know, I was like Ray. I was in, on a desert planet, like, working for portions. Yeah, yeah. Last and free time, man. I would I would go to the library, uh, the University City Library, and I would try to, you know, and I'd read everything. And uh, you know, when you're a kid, libraries they're not super strict about content, um, especially if you're just reading in the library. So a lot of the things that adults wouldn't talk to me about would be in the books I was reading. You know, like I Ah. I couldn't have an advanced conversation with an adult because they'd want to like, you know, wait to have that conversation with me, but I could read the shining, you know, I could read a Stephen King novel. I could read, you know, um, Hemingway or, 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 or something, um, you know, Steinbeck or Chester Himes or whatever you want to pick. So, you know, stories were always there, but yeah, I, I thought that, um, I would be, you know, like a Will Graham guy. Psychology was interesting to me. I thought I'd be pretty good at it. Um, and I kind of kept that dream. Um, you know, throughout high school until my mother interjected around 16, 17. And she's like, can you not have a gun? Like, do anything you want. Just don't have a gun. Um, and I was like, why? And she's like, because if you have a gun, the odds of other people you're dealing with having a gun go up dramatically. <laughs> this is very true. This is very true. So, so she's like, can you not? read that story? What made that? What made her advice or what made her request? Because at, at that age, you know, rebellion is there. And what about that request that your mom made steered you away from wanting to be an FBI profiler or just in the FBI? Well, because I mean, one like a mother's love is a broadsword that will cut through, this you know, true. a lot the of guilt, your, your, your BS. Your, the guilt, not guilt. It's it is guilt, but the worry, and you don't want to make your mom worried, and that that it is. It well, is yeah, a like, sharp I, sword, I, don't even, I, I don't know if you're a, you're a hip hop fan or not, but like you know, like there was a whole Jay Z versus Nas beef that was getting crazy, yeah. and then like Jay Z's mother got involved, and it stopped. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. She yeah, heard something true. on the radio, and she was like, "Baby, baby, this is going too far." <laughs> and then, like, it squashed it. Right? <laughs> right, stop this. Stop it. Just stop it. You know. So, so, uh, uh, you know, um, I'm black. If, if listeners don't know, and certainly in the black yeah. community, uh, you know, it's it's very matriarchal in a way. I mean, that kind of goes all the way back to like, you know, Africa, honestly, and, and yeah. villages and that sort of thing. You know, um. You know, there's a lot of ballyhoo about the negative aspects of the black family structure, and there are certainly issues, um, you know, like kind of economically and economic issues give rise to some cultural things. But, you know, when you, when you look past all the smoke, you know, there's a, there is a strong family structure in, in the black community. And so when your mom says, quit it, um, because I'm scared that you're going to die, you know, that, that, yeah, that gives yeah. you some clarity. And and I, and I did like storytelling. I just didn't think about it as a gig uh, until I had to apply to schools. And she's like, "Can you do something else?" And I was like, "Well, I like Star Wars a lot. I like I like books. <laughs> English was always the um, I had a knack for it. I guess communication and uh, reading comprehension and understanding story structure and that kind of thing." And I guess, you know, psychology has a lot to do with that. 
you know, uh, um, my interest in psychology, I think, kind of helped me understand storytelling in a way. And so, yeah, I was like, yeah, I, I kind of like movies. I, I, you know, maybe I'll try to make some movies or something. So I um, applied. To, I did, like, the dumbest thing you can do. I only applied to two colleges because I was super arrogant. Because um, I was like a scholarship kid growing up. And I was broke, but, you know, I could I could study. And I could get decent grades. And I figured, well, I'll get into USC or NYU, whatever. You know, I'll just get into it, right? And I applied to USC and NYU exclusively. I got the rejection letter from USC first. And I was like, oh, this might be a problem. Um, and <laughs> then I got the acceptance letter to NYU, and I was like, okay, I'll go here. Whew. Uh, but, yeah, and then so I went to film school um, to, you know, try to understand filmmaking. Uh, and then – I never intended to write comics. I loved comics as a kid, you know, Ark of Asylum, Batman Year One, you know, Dark Knight Returns. Like, those were my jams. And anything that was intense, like the intense sort of self-contained stories, those were – that was my tempo. Um, but I never thought about doing it because who knows how comics works? You know, that's like yeah. trying, to, trying to be like a, a, a swordsmith or something. Like, I know they exist, but I have no idea how you do it, right? So – I never thought about it, and I went to film school, and I, I genuinely thought I was going to be an independent filmmaker. I was going to make low-budget, character-driven, like, action thrillers. Uh, sort of like a, this filmmaker named John Cassavetes, and his work was a big influence on me. And then uh, Michael Mann. I don't know if you're with Michael Mann's films, but I, I keep talking about Michael Mann. Yes, follow me yes, on Twitter. Yes, you're going yes. to get an ear full of Michael Mann. Yes. Follow me on Twitter. Um. You know, and then I'd seen, like, Thief, and I loved the, loved the Miami Vice show. And I was like, okay, like, this is kind of fun. Did you like um, Collateral? Not enough people talk about the movie Collateral enough. I, you like I think Collateral – I think Collateral is probably man's best film in, like, a technical sense, right? Meaning, like, yeah. there's not much wrong with it, right? Like, it's, it's his – tightest movie. Man, as a filmmaker, tends to uh, uh, he tends to lean towards the epic. And, and what yeah, I appreciate definitely. about it is he turns common things into epic things. Right? Like, he approaches Los Angeles the same way that, like, David Lean would approach Arabia. You know, it just feels yeah. like this other world, the way that he, he puts it together, but the movies can feel very long and, and um, I like the length of, of, of those kind of pictures, but some people don't. But Collateral is it's just it's just a tight, tight narrative. You know, it's it's almost perfect in terms of what it's trying to do and what it achieves. Um, exactly. Now, is it my favorite Michael Mann film? Um, probably not, because I tend to gravitate towards things that might be a little flawed, but. But in those flaws, it's like a little raw. You know, I'm a first album guy. You know, like yeah, uh, yeah. As as an artist, like kind of refines their uh, their 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 instrument and and they get more stuff and all of that. I'm still interested, but I keep returning to like the first album because that was the one that had like the real viscera to it. Like I still listen to College Dropout, right? Because like that was Kanye trying to be a rapper. You know. Uh, uh, and and you can you can feel it like that need in there, which is a little different than you know the art that kind of comes down from the mountaintop, right? So yeah, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I, I probably gravitate to Thief, Manhunter, um, even the 2006 Miami Vice. I, I like a lot. I know a lot of people don't, and I get it. That's but your cover to me, photo, that isn't film... it? Is that your Twitter cover? Oh, totally, man. That, that movie spoke to me. I was like, you know, and I, 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 I need to watch it again because it. I didn't get much out of it, but it was before I like. I kind of turned on my writer mind, which I turn on and off well, periodically. Totally. I, I'm but, not, I, I, but what, what did you enjoy? Why do you like that one so much? Well, I, you know, I, I I've had life experiences that kind of keep me into the frequency of that film. You know, I've, uh, uh, I'm happily married now to a wonderful person, but I've loved the wrong person before, you know, and, and knew with that line, there's a line in there. Um, it's after Crockett goes to Cuba with, I think Isabella's her name, you know, and, and he's like, this is a bad idea and it has no future, you know? And I've, I've felt that way with, with someone before. So that spoke to me and, and just the, Life for me has been now it's easier than it was, but it, it for a long time it, it did feel like you were like pushing through and trying to do the right thing, trying to live the right way, trying to be righteous in a world that did not appreciate or reward righteousness. And that feeling is evoked, I think, in that film very well. The way he articulates Crockett and Tubbs. You, you feel that they're not going to stop drug trafficking because you can't, right? And and yeah. they don't get the bad guy in the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the bad guy gets away. You know, and and it, and it becomes more about what are the little injustices you can correct or keep from happening. You know, what are the smaller victories that you have, and um, and how do you get back on the horse? You know, uh, and I like the friendship between Crockett and Tubbs. You know, I mean, I've had I've been grateful to have very good friends. I was the only kid growing up, but I have some friends that I do consider brothers. Uh, you know, sort of like your chosen family rather than your birth family. I didn't have any siblings growing up, but I've had those close relationships and once like to depend on somebody like that for perspective, you know, for uh, backup and however you want to couch the term. So, all of, all of those things really spoke to me. And then aesthetically, the handheld kind of dirty grime of its digital cinematography really speaks to me. I'll just be honest. I like those fancy things. <laughs> so, you know, like, you know, what the Rick Ross says, you want some fancy things, I'm the one you've got to X. So, you know, <laughs> like, like that speaks to me, you know. It's so, so yeah. So like I, but I know it's not. I don't know how strong the narrative is, and and I, I get all the problems technically as a writer. But just sometimes films. I mean, as you as you can probably determine from talking to me this long already, uh, I tend to look through things through a prism of music a lot, and films uh, oftentimes strike me like music, and so Miami Vice for me is like a record. You know, I just put it on in the background sometimes just to kind of get a feeling, um, especially in LA, you know, LA is in Miami, but it's got Miami-esque qualities. So yeah. uh, it kind of, you know, it's kind of vibes that way with it. Um, but yeah, anyway, to answer your question. So when I came out of film school, I had no idea how one acquired a screenplay to make, 
So I was like, well, I am still broke, and now I have debt, and I don't have the money to buy a screenplay. So I'm going to have to learn how to make one. And so much of my life has been, I can't afford to hire anyone to do this, so I got to learn how to do it myself. And uh, I started writing. I was probably senior year of film school is when I started taking film writing very seriously, and I wrote like two terrible feature scripts in film school that I thought were just hot, and they weren't. Um, but I thought they were hot, and sometimes you need that. You know, you need you need the overconfidence just to kind of keep you going. You know, and, until you realize how whack what you have is, but you need that overconfidence to kind of get you in the game. So I was writing scripts, but still didn't think I was going to sell them to anybody or be a writer. I thought I was going to make my own movies. And I um, wrote a a script. Uh, there, was a, uh, there was a there was a girl, uh, a different girl, not the Miami Vice girl, different girl, and. Uh, yeah. Things, that, things did not go. To some of our they did not go the way decisions. I would like them to have gone. <laughs> I would have liked <laughs> things to go a different way. And back then, I, I, in retrospect, I'm very glad it didn't go the way I wanted. But back then, I would have liked things to go a different way. Um, and they didn't. So I wrote a script about it um, because how I dealt with things uh, was to put it in the work. You know, uh, put it on wax, as they say. And I, I wrote that script, and I thought I was going to make it, and I was sending it around to people. Because back, you know, and it's still, the, the business of it works the same way today. Like, if you, get, if you get a bankful actor or two in your script who wants to, like, do your movie, you can get the financing to make your movie. Um, not easy to do any of that, but that's, that's a pathway. It's a, it's a super broad oversimplification. That's like me saying if you win all the football games, you get a Super Bowl trophy. That's true, but it's hard to win all those football games. But that, that, that was the strategy. So I sent the script around to get actors attached. And uh, uh, I got an actor. I'm not, I'm not going to say her name because, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to put her, put her business out there. But I got an actor attached to it, and she was kind of interested in it. But it, we just couldn't, it couldn't come together. You know, I didn't have all the parts necessary, and I, was, I had no short film really coming out of film school. And, you know, I had all those headwinds. Um, but because I had gotten a response to it, people started taking an interest in me as a writer. Uh, and then you start meeting with people, and you know it turned into a Dolph Lundgren direct-to-video movie that I wound up writing, and that was the first thing that I really got paid to do, and uh, it, it, got, it got shot. It came out. It's called a Russian specialist. What was, the, what was oh, Okay. It's called the Russian. And what, the, and what was the gist of it? Oh, they they kill his family, and he got to get them. That, that's an original. You know, that's that's an original. Yeah, it was, plot, it, I think it was that movie. Like like, is <laughs> here's a, here's a funny like two minute story. So I met Dolph. You know, this is going on years ago, but I met Dolph because I'd written another script that uh, I wasn't really trying to sell. I just kind of wrote it. You know, I was going through a difficult time, and I was thinking about giving up the game. And so I wrote a script about a character I was thinking about giving up, and then something happens, and they decide they have to get back into it, right? I was just trying to get those emotions out. And I wrote it. Didn't know what I was going to do with it. Sent it off to my manager. I was still living in St. Louis at the time. I was too, too broke to live anywhere else. Um, so I'd gone and waited to come back to the loo. Uh, and then Dolph found that script and, and liked it, uh, hopped on the phone with me, which was a surreal moment in my life, you know? Uh, where your, your manager's like, because I got the manager through all the near misses I had. I picked up a manager and an agent. Um, and for those listening, 
That's kind of how it goes. If you're wondering how you get a manager or an agent or something, just keep creating stuff and keep sharing stuff, and you'll get one when you need one. I know that sounds like a pithy thing to say, uh, but it's genuinely true. The, the easiest way to, to get representation is to just start doing things, and then eventually someone finds you and, and, and teaches you everything you don't know, and then you start working together. I would not obsess about it, just as an aside for those listening who have the same ambitions to do what I do. But uh, my manager calls me up and is like, hey, Brian, so Dolph Lundgren read the script and wants to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. I didn't know there were two Dolph Lundgrens. And they're like, no, no, there's one. Same one. I'm like, really? The so dragon like, like two hours phone. later, dude, two hours later, phone rings, and it's Ivan Drago on the phone. <laughs> Brian, I read the script. I thought it was very good. I'd like to turn it into a film. Uh, like, I can't even speak, man. Like, you're talking about, you know, you were getting mad at comic book writers. You know what? I was a little mad at Dolph for killing Apollo Creed. Like, we weren't really cool. He <laughs> yeah, didn't know that. But, like, I wasn't cool, though. You know? I was like, mm, I'm feeling away. I, I have some feelings. Right? So, <laughs> and I told Dolph that when I met him, and he's like, <laughs> I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> And he's so gangster that like he didn't have to like the dude. So, um and he was a he was a lovely dude, man. Like he flew me out to his house in Spain. Um and uh I hung out with him for like a month in Spain in like a resort hotel uh in, in Marbella, Spain, uh and worked on the script with him. And the script we worked on was gonna be like the French connection, man. We were gonna take him out a whole new door. We were gonna Oh, they weren't. They, they didn't know what was gonna hit it. It was gonna be like the best direct-to-video thing you've ever seen, and we were really hyped about it. Um, and it was it was gorgeous down there because because Marbella is like a, a it's a hot spot for British tourists. So, you know, it's just like it's like a it's like a Bifa, just in Spain. It's crazy. It's like the craziest party city. So I I was having like four weeks of like a Hollywood experience, like waking up on the sand seeing the rock of Gibraltar poking out of the blue water, wow. like that type of stuff. Right. And I'm, I'm, you know, I didn't make a lot of money on it. I made a little bit of money, but I'm still broke. So it was like a weird dissonance, but I was just spinning around. Right. And, um, uh, we wrote the script and everything seemed like it was going to be fine. I went back to the States and, you know, I was like, well, let me know how the production goes. Then I get a call from Dolph like six months later, Brian, they want you to come up to Bulgaria for the shoot for the movie. I was like, okay, cool. So they put me on a plane, and I go to Bulgaria. Uh, you know, I'm some black guy from Missouri in Sofia, Bulgaria, which is a whole other movie. Uh, and as soon as I land in Bulgaria, uh, Dolph picks me up from the airport. Um, you know, he's got an assistant in a car, picks me up, and tells me, Brian, so the studio does not want to make our script, but they want to shoot Monday so you have to write a new script by Monday. And it was Friday when they picked me up. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> wow. Yeah, Friday, right? And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, about what? Well, there's a list of things that the studio wants to see in a story because they own these things. So just write a story around these things. And I wrote a script. I think I had a coffee with Dolph. And was like, okay, we're gonna have to do a western. 
Not a real Western, but it's going to have to be a Western. We need a simple structure here because we do not have a lot of time. So how do you feel about a vengeance movie? Something like Man on Fire and Spider. He was like, this is good. I like that. I like that. So he liked it. So I, it was like Mad Libs. They gave me a list of 12 things that need to happen. And when I, when I say, like, things, it was wild. It was like there's a nightclub. A car blows up. Someone rides a motorcycle. <laughs> like, it was just like. It, it, it was like Mad Libs. It was so nuts. Um, uh, so Dolph loaned me his Ferrari laptop because they make laptops apparently. Uh, and <laughs> we do. Yeah, and, yeah. So I got. I'm, I'm sitting there on, on Dolph's like Ferrari Acer laptop uh, with a ton of Red Bull in I think the best hotel in Sofia. Uh, which was sort of like, you know, like a four-star hotel in the States, but it was like a palatial hotel in Sofia. Um, and I'm just writing this script. I'm staying. I mean, it's like Friday night I started. I think I did like 25 pages Friday night, 50 pages on, on Saturday, and then like another 18 or 19 pages on Sunday. Um, and this is, this is before, you know, I met my wife and I had, I like, had like a little relationship with the jazz singer that was in the lobby of the hotel. Like it was just a wild time. Um, <laughs> because I was like, I was a black guy in Sofia, Bulgaria. So they all thought I was famous. Um, so I was like, sure, I'll be famous. Whatever. Why, why ruin your dream? <laughs> 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 you know, exactly. Right. You know what I mean? Like, why? It's fine. I'm famous enough. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So, um, yeah, yeah, and I turned it in. I emailed it to them on Sunday, and they were shooting pages on Monday. And what I forgot to tell you is, in addition to the That's list amazing. of 12 things, in addition to that list, I also found out that Ben Cross was going to be in the movie. And Ben Cross is an actor. He was, <laughs> you know, recently he was like the J.J. Star Trek of, like, Spock's father. He was in Chariots of Fire in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Barbara Collins on a show called Dark Shadows, uh, the remake of Dark Shadows, you know, in, like, the late 80s, early 90s, whatever. So they said something like, oh, yeah, you've got to find a part for Ben Cross. And I was like, what? It was like, yeah. Was this so, like on, so this was in had, the 12 things, right? This was in the 12 yeah, things. It was, well, it, was, it, was like, it was like 13. Why like, didn't they tell you this but like, before you went? At least maybe on the flight you could do a little work. God. I, I think if they had told me that I wouldn't have gotten on the plane. Oh, they knew, right? they I knew think, that, yeah. I think they needed me. I mean, because once you're in Bulgaria, what are you going to do? Say no? <laughs> like you know, it's Bulgaria, man. I mean, they could they could lose me. <laughs> I don't feel like I have a whole lot of options, right? Like you yeah. know, like well, what am I gonna do? Um, so, uh, uh, yeah. So I, after I had that that Friday night coffee with the Dolph, I then had a drink with Ben Cross in his hotel. And, you know, I met him for the first time, and I'm talking to him, trying to get a sense of him so I can put him in the screenplay. Uh, and it was the wildest thing. And uh, I just kind of charged my way through it because, I'm, you know, I was young. It was my first thing. I really wanted, you know, the, to see something get shot with my name on it. And I hadn't done enough stuff to know how crazy that was. I was just like, all right, well, this is just a movie, you know, stuff. This is how it goes, whatever. I can, I can, I can flow with it. Um, turned it in on Sunday night and then on Monday. And they started shooting that movie, and I was in Bulgaria three weeks uh, during production, and then I went back. Wow. That's yeah. a crazy story. I, 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 that's that's crazy. 
you know, he and I will trade <laughs> emails. It, it, and, he's just a surreal guy. I can't imagine meeting him. He's a surreal guy. Just watching him on the screen after dope, all those man. years. He's like a, Creed. He's a, he's yeah, a really surreal. dope guy. You know, like he's, he's a super dope dude. Uh, one day, because when I was, when I was working with him in Spain, and we can talk about American cards in a second. I know I'm just going on different topics, but you know, I'm sure your listeners think this is funny. So, uh, I um, oh, this is a great story. I went, cool. his, I went over to his house, right, and you know he has like the He-Man sword in a glass case in his house, because um, <laughs> he's because he's awesome, and he has a, like a bit. He has this broke office. He's on the phone with somebody, and he's like, "Bro, I'm gonna be with you in one moment. I just have to finish up a call." I was like, "Sure, man. You know, you're like seven feet tall and like a black belt and a, like a Mensa genius. So you do whatever you have to do, Batman." Um, so he was, he was on the call and then he calls me and he's like, uh, I have someone I, I want you to speak with just here. Just, I'm like, I'm like, who? He's like, just answer the phone. Just, just talk to him for a bit. You'll, 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 you'll enjoy this. So I, I put the phone to my ear and I'm like, uh, hello. And then I hear, yeah, so uh, Dolph tells me that you're a pretty good writer. And I'm like, <laughs> that's so cool. Is, is this the best Stallone? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, I was just talking to Dolph, and, I was, and I'm geek, and Dolph is laughing at me, and I am geeking out because like Stallone is is on the phone. It was wild. And I talked to him for like I don't know two minutes. I'm sure I just like stuttered. Yeah. How many people do you think they probably minutes. not to take away your special moment? Not to take away your special moment, but how many people do you think they do that to? They must like the reaction. Oh, that's not – I mean, it looked like that was how they just jumped somebody in the game, right? It, it, you know. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. That, that just sounded like, <laughs> oh, we got we got some fresh blood here, Sly. Hold on. Hold on. We're going to do that thing <laughs> again. Um, but it's still cool yeah, for all uh, parties, yeah. though. It's all parties involved. Totally. Like, <laughs> totally, man. Yeah, that is um, awesome. And that whole experience, that really – I was bit, right? Like, after I came out of that experience, I was like, okay, I'm going to find a way to do this. Um and then I kept writing screenplays and went back to New York. It never really made me money for like another couple of years. And, and that's another thing. For people listening to this, you might draw some blood and then go dry for a couple of years, and that's okay. Like don't think that when you publish your first thing or you write your first screenplay that you're just going to keep flipping chickens. You're not. Or you might. You might, but you also might not. But that's okay. Don't feel bad about that. I know a lot of people – they get real hard. They get down on themselves because, like, I published a graphic novel or a did thing, and I don't have a TV show, and I didn't get a big DC or Marvel book, and it takes time. It takes time. So when I was in New York after that, uh, kind of during that period, I was close friends with some a comic book artist, uh, Nelson Blake, the guy I did an image book with called Romulus. He's a, he's a good friend of mine. You know, he's, he's Crockett to my tubs, I guess. And... Um, that got me into the world of comics, but I still had no idea how to be a writer. Uh, I had tried submitting scripts to Marvel in DC and just got, you know, they, they just dabbed me every time on that. Uh, and I was super like, I just wrote a movie. You got to let me in. And they were yeah, like, right? nah. Like, nah, your movie's not real. Nah. And I was like, oh, man. So I, um, you know, I think I like, you know, it got some low paying stuff and, and wasn't really making any real headway for a few years. And um, then I met Matt Hawkins, a guy over at uh, Top Cow, uh, through an editor named Rob Levin, who's working at DC now. 
Uh, and Rob's a good writer in his own right. He doesn't write enough. You've got to write more Rob, but he's a, he's a good writer. Um, and then Rob introduced me to Ron Mars, who became kind of a mentor to me in comics, taught me format, and helped me translate my, my prose filmmaking voice into a solid comic book voice. Because so, the economy of comics is so tight. You, know, you just have so little space to tell your narrative. You've got to get in as late as you possibly can and get out as soon as you possibly can. Right? So Ron was hugely um, uh, influential, you know, just trying to teach me format and how to tell a story inside of that, that form. Apologize for the sirens in the background. I live in uh, L.A., so sometimes L.A. just jumps off. Uh, it happens. It happens. <laughs> it's jumping off right now. It'll, it'll pass in a second. So, uh, yeah, I, I've got a short story in a Top Cow book. And that led to uh, a miniseries I co-wrote with Rob um, at Top Cow. That Ron was uh, um, gracious enough to um, kind of, you know, get Matt to want, want to do. And then from there, you know, I had a relationship with Matt. Still, Marvel and DC wouldn't touch me with a 40-foot pole. But Matt would give me some more stuff to do. And eventually that led to a book called Postal. And I did about 25 issues of that, did a run on that book. Um, we have the second kind of, I guess, not season, but I don't know what you're going to call it, but we're doing another run on Postal right now. I think the first issue uh, might have already hit, and second issue's on the way. Um, and then I was doing, you know, screenwriting stuff here and there, like I would sell this or sell this pitch, you know, this kind of grind, 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 grind. And um, that's what kind of got me into comics uh, and, and how I kind of kept writing. And then I sort of put the camera away uh, because writing was starting to pay the bills, so I didn't have to. I, I wasn't hustling for a life, I was building a career, right? So then I was like, well, okay, um, let me focus. And, um, and I slipped and fell into television. Um, and, you know, I sold a few screenplays. Nothing got made. No big, I sold some big movie, like big, like movies that would be of a certain size if they made them, but they never got produced, but I'd sell them. And, you know, and I, and I made a decent enough amount of money selling them that I could kind of afford to go out to LA and do that. And then, uh, yeah, and then I, you know, Postal got optioned for TV. Um, I think it's like in development or something. I'm not part of that process. And um, uh, that, I, I guess, like put me on a TV radar. And then I met uh, a lovely man named Mark Verheiden, who is the showrunner of Ash vs. Evil Dead, who I credit with getting me started in television. He hired me for Evil Dead for season three. I'd never worked in the TV room before. I, I hadn't gone through like a seminar. I hadn't even watched like a documentary about it. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and the first week I was tragically awful. And then I, I'm a, I'm a fast learner though. So I got my, my stones together, uh, after that. And then that got me started in television. Uh, and now I'm, you know, I'm still working on screenplays. Um, I'm writing a couple for, uh, some studios right now. And I've got a couple of movies I wrote that, uh, might like independent style films, um, financed outside of the studio system that look like they might come together this year. Um, uh, I'll be able to say more about that when we get all the actors in, but we have some cool people attached and I got to meet some, some good artists through that process. And, you know, I'm just kind of on that, on that path. Shifting gears just a little bit. And if, if, if the listeners can't tell or not, I am also African-American, but so I'll ask, and this is an interesting question anyway, but I think it means something to us. Well, I know it means something to us specifically. What is representation? Well, he's, a, he's African-American. Art? I'm black. <laughs> there can be a difference. I mean, my podcaster voice, you know, my podcaster thoughts. 
I'm in that mode, you know. Uh, but what yeah, is representation? Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's how it is. But uh, so, what is representation? Just in just individual mediums and comics and TV and movies. Like, what does that mean to you? What does that phrase mean to you when you hear it and how you apply it, even? Well, you know, it's funny, man. Like, um, when I was first thinking, really, let's say I, I, I came out of high school in 95, um, first year of college, was fall of 1995. And back then, there just weren't a lot of black writers, filmmakers you could point to. I mean, we had Spike, we had Singleton. You know, you had folks back in the day. You had your Melvin Van Peebles and your Mario Van Peebles. You know, you, you had bits and pieces, you know. If you want people that were out there, like Julie Dash, and you know, you, I mean, you had some people. But it wasn't, it wasn't like it is now. You know, there wasn't an Antoine Fuqua. There wasn't a Steve McQueen. There, there, there certainly wasn't an Ava DuVernay, you know. Uh, and I kind of gave up on seeing representation and just decided that I just couldn't let that stuff stop me. You know, I, I, I was not going to be a person that was going to sit every day and feel sorry for myself or get angry about the, the lack of representation for people like me in a business model. I was like, well, sometimes you just have to be what you want to see. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll figure this out and I'll be that for somebody, you know, and that was kind of the, the, the thing I, I think I had. So I had a, like a laser focus that way. Um, and I think that, I think I picked that up from martial arts. I'm not a good martial artist, but I was a long, you know, standing one and um, uh, got a black belt. And I, I didn't really like compete, compete, but you know, I would do a little bit. And you know, it's like when you're sparring somebody, man, you just got to put it out of your head. You know, you just got to, it doesn't matter what belt they have. Because in, in the in the the, the, the dojang that I went to, it's like taekwondo, um, so it's Korean style. And you know my Kwang Young Nim, which is the equivalent to the Japanese sensei, um, Young Chul Ro is his name. He trained uh, Olympic level uh, uh, taekwondo um, uh, competitors, uh, and you know he would just put green belts up against black belts all the time. And when he would tell you this back when I was like 16 or something, I was taking this class and. And he would tell you, you know, like, just ignore the belt. You know, just use the techniques you know. Don't worry about the other things they know that you don't. He's like, you can, win a, you can win an entire tournament. You can win a gold medal with a front snap kick if you throw the best front snap kick. If you understand everything about the front snap kick, what the range is, where the power comes from, how to feint it, you know, all that stuff, you can win with just that technique, right? Uh, and I've applied that in, in life really. So I can't think about, you know, the, the, all of the reasons why it won't work. But I always had in the back of my mind this idea that I wanted to be an example for younger me's, you know, when I could be. Um, and that's kind of how I, how I think about it. Uh, you know, just I try to make it easier for the next person that looks like me or, or doesn't look like me. You know, because yeah, we all have advantages and disadvantages, and you know, I'm 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 certainly not going to say that like there aren't you know poor white kids out there that are you know climbing up the hill too, man. You know, the rabbits out there, you know, walking eight mile the same way I was walking through St. Louis. You know what I mean? So, um, 
you know, the, the, those kind of struggles can be universal in a way. And it's probably a better world if you remember that. But, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I thought about it in, like, pragmatic terms, you know, and more like, well, I can't – I don't see it, so I have to be it. And now I, I think about just making sure that uh, characters that are, you know, like female characters or characters of color or characters that are homosexual or transsexual or, you know, whatever kind of smaller demographic exists – that those characters have the ability to be anything, you know, and that means they can be villains. That means they can, they can do terrible things, you know, um, uh, like it's the freedom of expression. That's really important to me. Um, not the lionization of different demographics that kind of locks them into spaces where the characters aren't that interesting. Um, yeah, you know, it's, do you mean that you're black? Do you mean that your black characters don't necessarily have to be the supportive black friend that seems like it's <laughs> – on every NBC, ABC, CBS show, I swear in the drama, there's either a really smart black person that works in – if it's a law show, a really smart black person that works in the, uh, in the office or on the team, or there's a supportive black friend. It's like they, they put them there, and you hate to say tokenism, but they put them there just so they say there's diversity, but the characters don't have agency. They don't have – they're not three-dimensional. Well, I think a, I think a lot of that. It doesn't start with having been in rooms when decisions are being made and having talked talked to people that are doing casting things and all that. And again, I'm no authority. You know, I've just bummed around television for three years and sold a few scripts. Like, you know, I'm not uh, Quentin Tarantino or anything. But yeah, it it doesn't it doesn't start in a in a place of like tokenism. But what happens is folks get real gun shy. You know, so it's like. There's a genuine – for instance, I work with Akiva Goldsman on Titans, uh, the DC Universe show that I'm a writer on. And Akiva is a, what's a, a, a really cool guy and um, super wise, very experienced. I've learned a ton from him. Um, and he has a real agenda to make sure that we can diversify as much as possible. And you can really see that on his Star Trek work. Uh, Discovery and, and Picard and, and that sort of thing. Like he's he's very cognizant of that. But Akiva also has uh, the fortitude to do those things without locking those characters into certain modes of behavior. You know, because he, he's like they need to be real people though. Like not only do we want to see women here or, or brown faces, you know, or Asian faces, even though some Asian people are brown. That's the problem. We start talking about color, then you get, you know, you start messing things up. But like, yeah, yeah, we want yeah. to see, I, I want to see people that look like the world around me. But then he also goes the extra mile to say, but they have to have space to be actual characters, right? We cannot lock them in to, they have to, you know, they got to be Gordon Goodbrother or something, you know, the, um, you know, they can't, they can't be perfect. They, we, don't, we don't want these angelic characters teaching Matt Damon how to play golf. Um, no, no shots fired at Will. Don't come at me, Will. I'm just saying, you know, man. You know, no, I love you. Uh, but, but, yeah, and I think what happens is people are just worried. Like, you know, they, they get real scared about, well, can I have a character do, do this? You know, will I get canceled if I do that? Will this be a thing? Gotcha. And the problem, the, the real problem is – Frankly, we don't have enough uh, diversity on the decision-maker side, right? Like that's where it really matters because 
you need a person, and, you know, you need people in those those situations that understand what you're trying to do and know that just because you have a black character, for instance, do something unsavory, it doesn't make you a racist, you know? Um, and so we've got this weird thing going on in culture where we have a lot of diversity kind of rising at the base of the mountain up to the middle, but there's very little at the top, right? So uh, those two worlds are, are, are reconciling with each other, and they're, they're trying to figure out uh, – you know, trying to figure out that harmony. So it's important to me, like if you look at um, Batman and the Outsiders, for instance, you know, my, my work on Black Lightning, uh, I'm trying to make him like a, 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 a real guy, a three-dimensional guy. You know, he doesn't need to be an avatar of nobility. He doesn't need to be perfect. You know, he needs to be able to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. Um, like Duke Thomas, for instance, you know, like he needs to be able to go through changes and and it, you you have to be able to do the same things with Duke Thomas that someone could do with like Jason Todd or Damian. Yeah. Right. Like you can't be in a situation where no 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 Duke can't do that because we need him to be, you know, or like Cassandra Cain, right? Like you know you got to be able to open these characters up. So that that that's the next phase I feel in all of this is the okay. Yeah, we've got this inclusivity going on, but now we need to be able to be more free creatively to let these characters live and breathe like three-dimensional living beings rather than just symbols. Um, and, and what you see in fiction, I think, too many times now is, you know, uh, frankly, like a white character gets to have all the, all the shades of the psychological rainbow and then yeah. characters of color a white, tend to get a rendered white into character. symbols. Yeah, even though they can get better yeah, with the women, know. but usually it's a white male character because I'm a big Breaking Bad fan, and I would see all these editorials and these think pieces, and like, why isn't there a female Walter White? And it made me think, like, you don't – the white males get the complexity and the gray, which ends up making them the cool characters. Well, well, Breaking Bad is – you know, I was talking to my manager about it. Uh, Mikhail Mayfield is his name, and he's, he's, he's another brother of mine, uh, and – I always had trouble with Breaking Bad because to me, Breaking Bad was like the middle-aged white male fantasy of, oh, I'm smarter than the savages. So if I do what the savages do, I'll be better at it than they are. And if I can incorporate I their savagery, right, if I can incorporate their savagery with my intelligence, then I become the, the superior, right? I become the ultimate version of that. And that made it hard. I mean, look, and I'm not saying that Vince Gilligan meant that. Don't come at me, Vince. I'm not accusing you of anything. But that was my takeaway from it, right? Like that, see, that was, it was just, just – go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. How do you feel about it? Oh, well, I, well, see, I, I, see, I love Breaking Bad, but I saw so much of it as, and maybe because you found success quicker than me and we're, we're in the uh, same uh, age bracket, but I saw the futility of him and not getting what he wanted out of life, and I didn't take – I just took it as a man, a male thing or a humanity thing where, like, man, I have fucked my life away, and now that I am on – now that I see the shot clock is running down, fuck it. 
I'm a cook mess. You know, fuck it. I'm just going to break bad. Right. So I, I and that's probably the better way to look at it. Like, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying I never that people, that you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not advocating that people break their Breaking Bad DVDs. I, that was just my reaction <laughs> to the pilot and a couple more. Like, I'm, like, yeah, I'm, you know, let me, let me be very clear. I am a little bomber on it. I am yeah, I'm never. Well, you know, um, I think it's very important that people feel like they can watch whatever they want to watch. And if you <laughs> like a show, I want you to like your show. So um, I'm never, you know, I'm never one to say, oh, you shouldn't like this because, you know, I just, that's what I took from it. Art is art, man. You know, like, I don't like Salvador yeah. Dali. I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Like, one of the things that happens as you get a little older is that you can just be cool being wrong. I'm wrong, but I'm going to be wrong, but I don't need you to think I'm right, right? Like, that's the thing. Like, yeah. We, you know, I fight for a society where people can feel different ways about things, and that's okay. I don't need to convince you, you know, not to like a thing. Good I don't luck. need you to suddenly dislike a thing. Right. I know. That's, um, that's, that's tough these days. That's really tough. It, it, but, you know, it's like Mad Men. I had trouble with Mad Men because Mad Men felt like, oh, this is a simpler time before we had to think about anyone besides us. You know, and the romantic... And, the, they, they the, took a lot, like, and that one, I think that, I think that criticism is more fair because they took a long time to address the, the fact that black people existed on that show. And I watched the whole thing. It took a long... When they did, it was powerful, well, but it took a long time. And this is probably... When America good, like, was you know, great, yeah, and we're now we're slipping into the American Congress. See, I told you I was going to get there, um, but like here we get, we are, we are, we are. We're, we're getting close, but I, you know, and, and but what you're talking about is one of the unique American problems. Um, is we all because we're a heterogeneous society, America is an incredibly diverse country, with complicated, often dark, challenging history. Uh, it is impossible for every American to feel the same way about eras, about people, about history, right? And one of the things I think would help us, uh, which is this, and this is a very sort of like this is the opposite of what what um, our current president is doing, is having a patience and an empathy with people who just can't love a thing the same way you can love it because of very specific reasons. Like, you know, we just got this uh, recording released from Ronald Reagan where he was talking about African diplomats and they don't even wear shoes and they're monkeys, and, you know, and he was just going on, right? Now, I know, when I was growing up, you know, most of my relatives, you know, who were adults in the 80s were like, yeah, Reagan, Reagan was not good for us. You know, Reagan was not sympathetic to the plight of non-white people, and that sounded crazy. Easy people, you know, who were Republicans, conservatives, and they saw Ronald Reagan as like this epitome of what a president could be, should be. Looked like a president, sounded like a president, had a cowboy hat, rode a horse, right? Um, and it's I'm I cannot feel that way about Reagan because I know how Reagan felt about me, right? Like I can't look at Mount Rushmore and see people that thought I was a human being because three of them didn't and one of them kind of did right so 
That doesn't mean that I hate the country. It doesn't mean that I'm anti-American. It just means that I have a unique relationship to a giant George Washington head, right? And now we live in a or society. Or a flag, not uh, to get you in trouble, but I'll say it. Or a flag. No, 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 no. We can go there, man. Look, look, look. I ain't scared out here. Like, yeah. So when, <laughs> when Colin is kneeling, he's not attacking the troops. He's not, he's not saying America is, is horrible and Americans are horrible. He's just saying, hey, things are happening out here, and, and I want to recognize it. And I'd like you to think about it a little bit, you know, and, uh, and a lot of people get really upset about that because they don't, you know, American identity is funny. Like when I travel overseas, I do quite a bit for, for work. We have a unique form of patriotism in America. Um, like when you, when you go to other countries, you know, people, yeah, there's patriots for sure. You know, like the Japanese are very into being Japanese. Um, and, uh, you know, Canadians are, very, very into being Canadians, we the North, you know, all that. Um, but there's like this fever in America, you know, like there's a litmus test of patriotism. It's just the take it all or get out mentality. Or you know, leave, yeah. That's where you, that's where you get the whole, really, if they want to be here, they should leave, they should go back to where they came from. That's where you get all that from, right? Um, <laughs> Your impression's on point. <laughs> yeah, you know, look, man, it's easy to do when someone is so colorful. But um yeah, yeah. you know, like so but 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 you know, that thing, that thing, that's what's going to tear us apart. Because we are never going to be in you're not going to browbeat people into not hurting when they're hurting. Right? Like they you can't tell them not to hurt. You know? Um Maybe you can tell them constructive ways to use that energy. Maybe you can show them why the things that, that hurt them might not have to hurt them. But you, you're not going to get anywhere with the YouTube or a network or something just telling people that, no, your pain doesn't exist. Sorry, that's not a real thing. It's like, that's not cool. And, and it, the conversation, you know, it, it – there's, there's so many double standards. It's like, well, I'm supposed to identify with your uncomfortable feelings when you see an athlete kneeling in front of a football game, but you get to negate all the reasons why that person is kneeling and vilify that person. So your feelings matter, but my feelings don't, right? And that's the problem we have now in society is we're, 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 America is turning into a narcissistic culture where the only thing that matters is me. The only thing that matters is what I feel. What you feel doesn't matter, right? And sometimes, you know, there's a, there's a scale, right? Sometimes, yeah, this pain is probably more important than, than this pain because of the scale of it, whether it's, you know, you know like the – like, I, I sympathize. I, am, I grew up in St. Louis, so I know what working-class white America is going through with these opioids. I see it. When I go home and visit my mother, I see it. I get it. That's real pain. When the strip malls are all gutted and those jobs are gone, when the factory is gone, you know, that job that was paying good money in St. Louis 
that you thought you were going to be able to kind of get your kid up into that job. You're going to be good, and that job is gone, and you're not getting trained for the new job. You know, that's pain. I get it. That's real pain. Um, so it's not, you know, there's, it's not, I don't, it's not always race associated, color associated, culture associated, but we have to, we have to, we have to stoke our empathy. And so American carnage uh, is, is about, it's a heightened world American carnage. You know, I mean, that, that, that Vertigo series, it, there's a lot of Michael Mann in it. You know, it takes place in planet Los Angeles, right? It takes place on planet America in a way. And, yeah. uh, it is. And I wanted to set it in Los Angeles because I wanted to get it out of the South. Because there's this kind of myth that, well, racism That's is That's the only place racism is. Right? Yeah. Racism is a, is and a you subvert. Thing. You do a good job of subverting expectations when I was reading that. And I don't read comics like I used to. I used to be into them all the time. And I was telling my best friend that I used to pick up comics from the comic book store and I'd read them in the car. Now they might sit a month, or I'm doing them digitally, and they might sit a month or two or three. But this is the first comic in years that I just jumped to, and it 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 touches so many, it hits so many touchstones of where we are. But I feel like it's a book that it is political because what it's dealing with is dealing with the politics of our time. But it's not political at the same time. Does that make sense? What I'm saying to you about it? Absolutely. When so the way it came about was. Andy Corey is a friend of mine. He's an editor over at DC. And, and he introduced me to Mark Doyle, who uh, at the time was in charge of the Vertigo line. And they were going to do this relaunch of Vertigo. And I had done a little bit of work for DC. Uh, I, I did like six issues of Detective Comics and, and, you know, like a little short story here and there. You know, I've been on a couple, couple records. I had a couple records, right? Um, <laughs> I wasn't 50 Cent, but I was like Lloyd Banks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I was on the record, like yeah, you know, like you know. So I was, I was there. Like, want to get it? When you're doing it, you know, I was there. I, I had some bars, and so uh, I reached out and said, "Hey, Brian, do you want to do something for this Vertigo 25th anniversary?" And Vertigo was, you know, as when I read comics growing up, you kind of graduate into the grown comics. Yeah, you do. You know, you start off you with do. your. Spider-Man and Captain America and Superman and, and action comics and all that. And then, you know, you get your heart broken a couple times. Maybe you break a heart or two, you get into a fight, you win one, you lose one, whatever. And then, you know, you start having these these kind of mature feelings about things. And then you start gravitating like Ryan Azzarello, you know, Neil Gaiman, Warren Ellis, yeah. Alan Moore, right? Vertigo, Grant for people, people that aren't comic people, Vertigo is kind of like the HBO of comics, if I'm getting some of my fans here that aren't as familiar with comics. But I feel like Vertigo, the simple way to say it, like, especially back then, it was like the HBO of comics. Yeah, yeah that is a yep. great way to frame it. So I read that work. I was really passionate about it. And that logo meant, like, for people who don't read comics, when you read a Vertigo comic, you knew you were going to get a face slap. Right, those, 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 those were the those were the comics that would slap you back, right? So uh, I was like, "Ooh, that's really interesting, fellas." When they when they brought it to him, but I told him I don't really have a magical realism story. You know, a lot of vertical comics are, you know, they're a little bit of fantasy here, a little bit of this there, a twist of mythology there, like you know, different things. And uh, I've been doing research about the white supremacist movement in the states ever since Charlottesville. Uh, not Charlottesville. Um, uh, uh, Dylan Roof. Um, was that Charlottesville? I forgot, I forgot what city it was. South, so South Carolina. Yeah. South Carolina. Yeah, South Carolina. Thank you. 
Thank you. See, it's, it's, sad it's a sad so thing when you, can't, you can get confused. when you can't keep up with the yeah. tragedies, right? You just can't keep up with them. You know, um, uh, rest in peace, Heather Heyer. She was Charleston. So, uh, uh, and I've been doing some research because I had a friend of mine that was a good friend of mine growing up, white kid, um, and we used to, you know, we, we, we would ride pretty hard. And I didn't see him for a long time. And, and then I, you know, I saw him again uh, when I was in college and he'd like gone full skinhead, you know, like Eddie Furlong, American History X, like he had the whole thing, spider webs, 88, and lightning bolts, and the whole, whole deal, right? And I bumped into him uh, at a video store, you know, and, and he was with a little crew, and uh, you know, I didn't want any trouble. But we kind of like, you know, recognized each other, and, then, and I could see on his face, he was like, oh, man, you know, and I was like, whoa, and no words. Then I called his mom, because in St. Louis, it's like a village. You know, you you pick up a tin can and you call people in St. Louis. <laughs> so uh, I was like, what's going on, you know, with so-and-so? And she's like, yeah, you know, he made some choices and some things happened. And, you know, you know, like his, uh, her brother went to, went to the war and came back. And, you know, it's things happen, right? Like, I was like, okay, okay. Um, you know, would you sit down with me somewhere? Uh and so I'll, I'll try, you know, I'll try to reach out to him. And so, you know, she reached out and, and we found a neutral place to be uh, where he wouldn't get seen by his people talking to the enemy and, and where I wouldn't feel like I was going to get curb stomped by having a conversation. Um, a fair compromise. And, you know, we, right? Like, you know, who wants to get curb stomped out <laughs> here? Like, that's not, you know. Like, that's really, not yeah, like me. he's the one uh, that has to be protected. <laughs> like, yeah. Yes, it's life, man. Life is messy. So, and and we and we, we sat and we talked and 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 you know and and I'm not I didn't change his life. I don't know what he's doing now. I mean, we're you know we we didn't keep it up, but we you know, we we were able to connect on a human level um, a little bit. And uh, after that, I was like, man, I gotta I gotta you know writing for me is is catharsis, man. I gotta get it out. Uh, you know, it's it's um. Like if I was a rapper, I definitely would be more like a J. Cole kind of kind of Kendrick vibe than like mm-hmm. DJ Khaled, you know. And I'm not I'm not really. A, I mean, I'm I'm at a couple of nightclub joints. I'm, I might give you like a hubble or something, but like a lot of it would be like <laughs> you know backpack stuff. So yeah, uh, yeah, I started just doing research. I didn't know what this was going to be, and then I started reaching out to people in the actual movements and. And, you know, I, I would, like, go to message boards and pretend to be one, and then I would talk to social workers and people I knew. Uh, hey, can, they, can you sit me down with people in this movement so I can kind of see what's going on with it? Um, I got a couple of cops that are friends of mine uh, that would, uh, off-duty, be in the area for me, you know, just to make sure I had something, had some kind of backup, you know. Um, and so I would do that. And I had all these notes. And... I didn't know what I was going to do with him, man. I, I don't know if this is a story or not. I don't know what's going on. And then, um, you know, when Vertigo reached out, I was like, well, I have, I have this stuff, and I have this story I'm working on, and I don't know what it is, um, but it's not like an anti-Trump thing. Because I was, I was researching it before Trump, right? So uh, Trump wasn't the, the thing. You know, it wasn't like Trump got elected and suddenly I had to go take it to a book. Uh, that was just a, yeah. another another brick in the wall, right? Uh, yeah, that's what Pink Floyd. And it reads. That's the but, thing I love about the thing I love about American Carnage is it could have been that book, 
but it doesn't read like that book, which is kind of like my question. And I, I like that because I'm, I love politics. I'm, I'm a political junkie, but I don't like when people preach it at me. Like I could just go and watch, you know, I'm not going to say a name, but I could just go watch any show. Yeah, you know, well, I'll say that. I could just watch Rachel Maddow if I wanted to get that perspective. Like I'm reading for entertainment. Well, yeah, I'm reading yeah, to be like, I mean, I'm reading to to be to be challenged in some level, you know, so I, I, I respected that. I was, that was my greatest fear. I was very excited about the premise, but I was really afraid that it just was going to be, oh, we're just going to bash these people or we're going to bash Trump or whatever. No, no, no. I, you know, I never, I never wanted to do that because one, you're just preaching to the choir at that point, right? Like exactly. you're, and, and look, there's catharsis in that. And again, like, you know, if that's, if, if, if you need to do that to, to, to get it out of you, do it. Like, you know, you go to the booth and lay down whatever you want to put down, like, you know, let, let your truth out. But for me, I wanted to capture the messiness of it. And part of that is growing up in Missouri because Missouri is a purple city in a very red state. And you're going to have messy relationships, you know, and if you're just going to draw a red circle around racism, it's not cut and dry. You know, you've got people that would see you struggling on the side of the road with a car that's that you know isn't working and they'll give you a ride but they might also you know use a slur you know what i mean and and you have to you got to reconcile with that weird like okay okay this is a thing um and and frankly and, and i've said this before i don't think trump is interesting enough to write a whole book about him <laughs> like i don't like you know i think he's a pretty simple creature because uh, um, you know, I lived in New York for nine years, uh, coming out of NYU. I was you know, there for four in NYU and then five after him. So, you know, I mean, I'm used to him, man. I just, you know, I just think he's like any other con man. You know, he just, um, uh, you know, he's just, just that guy. You know, he got the snake oil and he comes in with the wagon and tells you, you know, he's going to make it rain. Then you buy the snake oil and move on to the next town, you know. Um, so I didn't think he was that interesting. But what I, what I did think was interesting was trying to peel away at stock and having a bunch of flawed characters kind of smashed up into the same story and then getting into dogma and how dogma works on people and how identity works. Because, look, it's all identity politics. You know, when people when, – when I hear people on the right complaining about identity politics, I'm like, y'all are all identity politics too. Let's be real, right? Like, y- your identity politics is okay, but then, you know, this person's identity politics is not okay, right? That's not – come on, you're not playing fair. But you think that your identity is the, the, the median. So that's cool. So you're saying that, like, aberrant, in your, in your view, like, aberrant identity is, is, is the problem, right? So you need to reduce your specificity so you can match my generality. You know, that's kind of the attitude. So it's, well, you know, it's a, lot, a lot of hypocrisy in there. But anyway, yeah, I just thought it would be an interesting crime story to tell against the backdrop of this stuff. But I didn't want to browbeat people. And what I am most proud of with that book um, besides, like, Leandro's amazing art and Dean White's amazing colors and Pat's, uh, uh, you know, Pat Brousseau's, like, uh, really, really great letters, you know, all the, the, the fantastic artists who are all much better at comics than I am that came in to help me get that book off the ground and, and get it realized. What I'm most proud of are the conservatives that, that reach out to me on Twitter. And I get a lot of DMs because a lot of people won't reach out to me in public because, you know, I'm on the side but they'll, they'll holler at me on the back end, you know, um, which is part of why I keep them open. 
because I get I get DMs from people you would be surprised. Uh, you know, engage my work and read my work. You know, some of them kind of notable in in what what a liberal would call the anti space, right? Um, and and you know, and I'm patient. I you know, we have little Donnie Brooks, um, you know, um, uh, via DM when I have time for it. Uh, but they'll tell me like, you know, I I was all ready to hate this. Because I thought it was just going to be, you know, you're going to bang the simple drum, but you really made me think about some things. Uh, and I'm not saying I changed anybody's mind. I'm not nearly that arrogant. But uh, yeah, I was proud of the fact that people who were kind of set to say, okay, I'm going to write this off. This is just going to be a screed. You know, it's going to be Trump is bad and you're bad and you're all bad. And, and, and you know, there's going to be no nuance to it, no dimension. And, and those folks have read it. Like, read it to hate it, man. I bought issue one <laughs> to hate it, right? And issue one kind of comes out with the fire. So they were like, yeah, okay, yeah, you're going to do it. And then they read issue two, and they were like, okay, wait a minute, hold up. Hold on, hold on, hold on. This is messy. This is messier. Okay, okay, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. And so, you know, and as it would go on, people would be like, oh, okay. Oh, 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 he did that. He did, oh, oh okay. You know, and uh, – that's that's the power of, of art, you know. Um, and we always knew it was going to be a limited series, because uh, I, I, that's not a world I want to be in for four four or five years. I told them that straight up. I, I was like, listen, see, I see why. Yeah, I, I need to do like less than ten of these because I can't be in this this mental frame for you know a lot of time. I don't I don't I don't like being here, but I think it's a it's a it's a good project to do. Um, and they were fine with that and. Yeah, and you know, and, and and that's really what that is. And so, hopefully, the book is still relevant, not because of its engagement of racism, but because of the way the characters are articulated and and the choices those characters make and the emotion of the book. You know, at some point, Trump will not be president. That's inevitable. He's not a king. So whether he's not president in you know twenty twenty one after the election or he is. He will still not be president one day. And if you have a medium to long view of American politics, you can see that the pendulum swings. You know, when it swings one way, it's going to swing the other way, right? I mean, it's one of the fascinating things about this country is we are a country that in the span of 12 years had a black president for eight and now Donald Trump for four. And that's kind <laughs> of amazing, right? Like you, you like, you know, you look back at the Obama years and it's almost like, yo, that looks like a TV show compared to where we are. Yeah. You know? And, uh, uh, that's how America works. Like it's, it's this kind of fascinating thing. Um, how the, the tone and the tenor can just shift so broadly. You know, I mean, look, look at what's happening to Joe Biden. And look, I, I'll be honest, like, I don't, I don't really have a specific dog in the hunt, you know, on the Democratic side. Like, they all, you know, they all, they all seem to, you know, think they're, they have the answer. Um, I personally would prefer if Trump wasn't president, but, um, you know, I know that people, maybe some people listening to this, you know, would like it to go the other way. That's cool. Um, but Joe Biden was, he was cool. He was yeah, he was. He was. Now, like, none of right? that counts anymore. 
you're not cool anymore. You're gonna go it's back. Gone. It's gone years. now. Right yeah. now, I was like, Ooh. Okay, it's gone. Yeah, it's you know, crazy. and I just watched it last night. Not to get, I mean, not last night. Today, and like, he was defending stuff that he did as vice president. I'm like, wait a minute. He was vice president for the first black president. That should be like his past for the rest of his life, but it's not. Because everything is hip-hop now, and nothing you did matters. It's all about what that last record was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, you put out, you know, you, you won the best lyricist in the history of the game, and then you put out Revival, and now you whack. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just like that. Somebody, they were having a discussion about that on my thread. Yeah, on my uh, some my page, they were having a discussion about that in the music thing. Let me uh, ask you a couple questions about Carnage. Let me get a little deeper about uh, Carnage. Yeah, what made yeah, you decide to the uh, titular character, the main character, protagonist, Richard Wright? What made you decide to have him be biracial? Oh well, that's sort of an analog to how I felt growing up. I I am not biracial. Well, I mean I I, I mean I've got I've got a lot of Native American. Everybody, yeah, you know, not right. You know what I'm saying? I'm not like I'm not saying I'm you know I'm not like T'Challa or anything. <laughs> you know, but but I yeah, but my my none of my parents are, are white. Um, but I was uh, I was very poor growing up, and um, I think as I said before, I was a scholarship kid. So I was a poor kid going to a fancy school. Um, in the Midwest, and I felt like I lived between worlds. You know, I had Led Zeppelin days and Run DMC nights, and um, I never really knew where to sit because I had to figure out a way, kind of like an actor, you know, I had to figure out a way to find the character that I could be that would make my, my days comfortable, and then I could come home and I could kind of be myself. But then as time went on, the experiences I would have at that school with those kids, I mean, there were like maybe four or five black kids in my class, you know, um, and everyone else was, was white and fairly well off. Then you have these experiences with those kids that your family doesn't really understand, you know, because you just have a different viewpoint. Right. Because, you know, like you're, you're, you know, you're, you're 15 go into someone's sweet 16 party and they have a palatial estate somewhere in Missouri. And, you know, your, your parents never went to, to this neighborhood, the one they're dropping you off, you know, uh, uh, at that night, but you did. And, and you're talking to their parents and they're hugely successful. And, and, you know, a lot of them were, I'm sure a lot of them were Republicans and, and cause they, they didn't want to pay taxes on it. I get it. Um, but, the, and, they'll, and they'll talk to you about like wealth and responsibility and other things, you know? And, and so you have like a little different, you have a different viewpoint on it um, because it's not mythical anymore. You know, like, you know, three kids who got luxury cars at 16, you know, a kid rolls up with a Dodge Viper to your high school and it's his because it was his birthday, right? That's, that was the reality of it. And then you go home and, you know, you're eating like, you know, ham hocks and lima beans um, that night. Because money is tight. So it was this hard way to grow up, man. And I had a lot of anger about it. Because I never felt comfortable. I never felt like I could be who I was. I didn't even know who I was. So articulating that in a story and its specifics uh, would be tricky. It would be difficult. Because there's a lot of nuance there. But 
Richard became an analog to those feelings, you know, because the, the biracial aspects of him, it's easy for a reader to kind of pick up on that, right, on standing on the razor blade in between two worlds. So I was able to take not the literal things that I experienced, but I could take the emotions of the things I experienced, I could transfer and those into him as a character into what he was doing by infiltrating these white supremacist organizations and having to be like them um, in order to, you know, kind of try to make the world a little safer, I suppose. Uh, so, yeah, that's where all that came from. I have to ask you, which is one of the things, and I and I loved it from the beginning. I liked it. It got better every issue. But the thing that, like, it really stuck with me, and there are other things that stick with me, but it stuck with me. It's just the guy in the Obama mask. I don't know why that <laughs> that got me, and it was so visually arresting, but it just, like it, it attacks you. Where did you come up with that idea? Well, uh, one, I was a huge fan of Point Break when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, that's what it made me think of. You know, and like the ex-president bank robbers, right? I always thought that was just like a dope aesthetic. Um, so I was like, okay, cool. And then it's what I observed during the Obama years was a relatively average man. And I don't mean average in terms of capacity or intelligence or charisma. I get that. He's a very special man in all of those ways. But, I mean, he's not that that, really. You know, he's sort of like a center-left dude with some center-right stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, he was, you know, he was deporting people and he was killing people with robots. <laughs> Right. People conveniently forget that, but yes, he was. Oh yeah, like Obama wasn't about like starting the war, but he would put a transformer on you in a heartbeat, you know. Quickly, um, <laughs> quickly, quickly, he put them transforming. I mean, you'd be out there with Starscream if you weren't careful. So, <laughs> you know, and to watch how both sides of the political spectrum uh, either lionized or demonized him. Right, just made him so much more than any person could possibly be. Right, he's he's more monster to Republicans than any man could possibly be, and he was more saint to liberals um, than any man could possibly be for a little while. You know, uh, uh, but it he stopped being like a person, right? And so I thought. This would be a really interesting thing because that's going to – just seeing his face on a character, well, that was, that's going to create a feeling in someone. And, and for that character, obviously, it's a mockery, right? You know, like the, for that guy wearing the mask. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's his way of, of like kind of, you know, dragging it through the mud and kind of throwing it in Richard's face a little bit, right? You know, here's your black messiah, you know. He has a gun in his hand, um, and it's aimed at you. But I just thought it was a, a, it's sort of like, I guess, a symbolic presentation of how, you know, people can just become avatars of things and symbols and how messy it is when someone does become a symbol and symbols are used for different things. And um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a movie, uh, old black and white movie called Eyes Without Face, um, and uh, John Carpenter uh, uh, is a big fan of it, and he um, referenced that movie with Halloween, 
with how he articulated Michael Myers, you know, and there's this kind of terrifying aspect to a, to a mask because it freezes uh, a face in emotion, right? And so there's that uncanny valley thing that happens. And, the, and, and whether it's a blank face like a Michael Myers or it's like the permanent smile of a president's mask, you know the emotion is, you know that's a lie, right? You know the expression is a lie. And we don't like that. Like as, as creatures, part of our survival instinct is based on being able to read a person's expression. It's like eye contact is so powerful. Uh, you know, I, I always tell you, I always tell people that like, like, you know, if you're on a date, like, you know, it's a, not your first date, you don't want to be creepy, but it's like your third date or your fourth date, and you really want the, the person you know, male or female, to know, like, that you really care about them and that you want to, you know, have them in your lives. Like, just sit with those emotions and put those emotions in your eyes and look at them. And you'd be surprised at what that does to a person. You know, you don't need a line. You don't need a whatever. You don't need to, like, get, get someone drunk or something. Like, you, you know, you can just kind of connect that way because we, we don't do it that much. And, but because expression is such an important thing for us. Um, to have a character who is despicable in so many ways um, with, with a permanent smile on a face that some people would trust. You know, I guess 54% of the population would trust if you're going to go by statistics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I just thought that was an interesting kind of thing to throw in there, you know, um, uh, and, and use. Well, this has been a great – I mean, you're the easiest podcast guest I've ever had because you just go. <laughs> we just push play and you go. This is great. Uh, can you hit everybody? Any, if there's any new projects you can talk about real quick or just tell people where to follow you at Twitter, that'd be great. Uh, yeah. You know, like, well, it, you know, if you're into comics, well, currently I'm writing Batman and the Outsiders, and that comes out every month from DC Comics. Make sure you check that out. Um also working on a comic adapt- adaptation, really, but it's a continuation. Oh, no, it's a reimagining of, of Angel, the old television series, right? And that for Boom Studios. And um, I'll have an X-Men comic called Fallen Angels that is out later this year. Um, Postal, like I mentioned before, is, is out now. And then beyond that, uh, I, I'm a writer on a show called Titans. It's part of the DC Universe. Um, live action, you know, it's Robin, Beast Boy, Starfire, uh, uh, Raven, that kind of thing, through a comic book show, write that. And, you know, I got stuff coming up. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, which is probably the best way to engage me on social media, I Instagram a little bit, but, like, not really. Um, Instagram is, is essentially where I just put my portrait photography. Um, I do that in my spare time, too. I, I like taking portraits. But uh, the, the real engagement comes on Twitter. You can find me there at, at Brian Edward Hill. That's uh, Brian with a Y. So, yeah, you know, add me to Twitter, and, and if you want to pick up American Carnage, issue nine is out now. It's the last issue. I wouldn't start there, um, but uh, <laughs> you might be able to you might be able to find back issues. And if you can't, there we're going to collect all of it into one volume, um, which was always my goal was to have it really be like a novel experience, where you could sit down and read it cover to cover. Um, so that's going to be out, uh, I believe, later this year. Um, so you can check that out and. Uh, you know, just holler at me. I, I'm out here. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. This was great. Thank you, man. This is, this is, this is awesome. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and so I appreciate everyone who's listening to this. Um, and, yeah, you know, uh, if it's day, have a good day. If it's night, have a good night.
All right. Thank you, man.